few verses from the beginning of Isaiah 43. Very famous verses. Some of us have been reading through Isaiah in our, through the Bible notes uh, or, or readings. Isaiah prophesied this about 100 years before the, the events we're going to read about this morning in Daniel 3. 100 years before prophet Isaiah in Judah said this. Now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire, and the flame will not burn you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your prophetic word, which is recorded for us in Scripture, and now is a Scripture that speaks to us today, too. You are our God. You are with us. We pray this morning as we look at Daniel 3 that you, Holy Spirit, will inspire us not only to imagine and understand these events but to see that we too live in times which are similar in some ways. And we need to know that same promise of faith that you are our God and you are with us. Help us now, Holy Spirit, we pray for the honour of Jesus. Amen. So the headline today is this, not a comfortable one, faith in the furnace. Not faith for the furnace, you're not looking for it. (laughs) But if it comes, you need to have faith to go through it. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream which greatly disturbed him, so he ordered his counsellors, the wise men of Babylon, to tell him the dream and interpret it, or his guards would kill them. And the guards had started killing some of the wise men when Daniel said, whoa, 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 hang on, Uh, let me talk to the king. So he went to the king and said, if you will give me some time, I'll bring back the answer. And Daniel and his friends prayed into the night. The Lord showed Daniel the dream and the interpretation. It concerned a great image. Uh, And it was made up of different layers from top to bottom, which represented four empires which would succeed one another. The top was a kingdom of gold, the Neo-Babylonian Empire of which Nebuchadnezzar was the second king. After that, there would be a kingdom of silver, which was the Persian kingdom. Uh, We read about Cyrus and Xerxes and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. Uh, The book of Esther is in that period. The kingdom of bronze followed that one. That was the Macedonian, or we know more better as the Greek Empire, started by Alexander the Great. Then that empire was eventually overtaken by the kingdom of iron, mixed later with clay, which was the Roman Empire. In the days of that empire, the kingdom of God would come and begin to break down all the kingdoms of the world and to fill the whole earth. That kingdom was started by the life and death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus The kingdom has come. We're going to do more on that when we get to to Daniel 7 onwards about the kingdom coming in Jesus. So having had the dream opened up to him, and he's heard that he is the head of gold, he's the top of the statue, what does Nebuchadnezzar do sometime later? Let's read it together. Daniel, there's the kingdom of God. 
Daniel 3, 1 to 6, and we're going to explain it as we go along. Nebuchadnezzar, this is some years after chapter 2, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. Uh, a cubit is about a, is that, it's about a foot and a half, so you can divide that by two and it comes to meters or yards, yes? 30 meters high. And its width was six cubits, nine meters, uh, three meters wide, nine feet. He set it up in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates. That's all the paraphernalia of the bureaucracy and government of Babylon. And all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here we are again. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. So they gathered, and now they're standing there. Then the herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony and with all kinds of music, you will fall down and worship the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. This, the king had this huge statue, huge in those days, either of himself or of one of his gods, Bel, Baal, or Nebo, and he has it set up in the countryside that is outside the city. Roman emperors later did the same sort of thing. The emperor Nero had a statue of about that size, right in the middle of Rome, the Colossus of Rome, of Nero. People do that kind of thing still today. When I travelled in Eastern Europe years ago, there were statues of Lenin all over the place. You know, years after Lenin had gone and years after the USSR had fallen. But they were still there, these statues of Lenin. Saddam Hussein did what in Iraq? Had statues of himself put up all over Iraq. By the way, just to mention, we'll come back later on when we look at kind of some more Bible prophecy. But when we're talking about Babylon, modern day, that's Iraq. When we talk about Persia, modern day, that's Iran. All right? So it's as if Nebuchadnezzar's response to the dream of his empire giving way to another and then another and finally being overthrown by the kingdom of God is, is this, is to say, my kingdom is all gold, top to bottom. And I can't see it ever being overtaken or overthrown. And in chapter 4, we'll see how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. That's next Sunday, and the Sunday after that is um, John Plus. He may have built the statue for the same reason that others over centuries have erected statues and monuments, to celebrate a great victory. And if our timing is right, and some people's commentators say it is, this statue may have been built to celebrate the victory in Judea in which Nebuchadnezzar's army is completely overthrew Jerusalem and destroyed and burned the temple to the ground. So here they are celebrating his great victory. He's now conquered Judah, which had been a troublesome part and didn't, you know, he'd had a few goes at it. Finally, he's won there. And how poignant it would be for three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to be standing there on this plain of Jura, and everybody's bowing down to worship a statue which celebrates the conquering, overthrow, and destruction of their nation their city and their temple. Poignant, isn't it? 
When the statue is completed, Nebuchadnezzar has his dedication ceremony. And when the music plays, all fall down and worship the statue and image. But that's not like having the statue like we've got in Harlow, you know, the statue art kind of thing. It's an object of pagan religion. It celebrates the victory of a, of a god over the god of Israel. Failure to bow in worship or in honor is punishable by death, being thrown into a burning furnace. And there probably would have been furnaces in the plain of Jura as they built the statue, because the statue was almost certainly made of cast bronze covered in gold. All right? And to cast bronze, you need furnaces. So at that time, Daniel 3, verse 7, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But we know from the next verse that three men didn't bow down. Daniel isn't there because he's back at the royal palace. In the end of chapter 2 we learn he'd asked for his friends to be appointed governors in the province outside the city while he stayed in the city close to the king. That was his, his wisdom. that He didn't realize God wanted him there. So Daniel isn't there. In fact, it's interesting how these trials work out, for, of trials of faith in Daniel. In Daniel 1 and 2, the four young men are together and they face trials of faith together, but Daniel taking the lead. In Daniel 3, the three without Daniel face a trial together. In Daniel 5 and 6, Daniel stands alone. He's by then an old man, and the other three had probably passed away. Here's my point here, and we'll come back to it again later. Despite the Sunday school hymn of my youth, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, we are not all called to be Daniels and to stand alone. Most of us are called to stand together with others. We find strength and courage through shared faith and prayer and conversation. I believe that's how it is for the majority of Christians, though some of us like to believe more of ourselves than we should. Those he calls to a solitary trial, those who, for instance, are in prison for their faith and they're on their own there, are given special grace to endure that trial. But for most of us, we seek the grace and help of God together for one another. We fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens, loving one another. We each may come to a time of trouble, of trial, but that peril, that danger is even greater if we neglect God's means of grace, which is how he delivers grace to us, which include scripture, prayer, worship, and fellowship, togetherness. Hebrews written to Christians with a, from a Jewish background who were enduring fierce per- opposition, fierce persecution. In fact, a lot of the New Testament is written to people in times of persecution. To them, as well as magnificent passages about the greatness of Messiah Jesus, the greater glory of the new covenant, and the greater and better Jerusalem which is above, uh, Paul wrote this, Hebrews 10. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. Come on, come on, come on. Exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Think of Psalm 23 again. I, I hammed it up, I know, last week. God lays out for us a table of grace and help even in the middle of our enemies. 
Surrounded by enemies, God lays a table for us. We have to turn up to that table, to the means of grace that he gives us, and receive from him. And we come boldly to receive grace and mercy to help us when in time of trouble. Hebrews 4, which we didn't get that bit today, but never mind. Some of the Chaldeans saw the opportunity to attack these Hebrew men. Throughout this chapter, the three are referred to by their Babylonized names, but let me just remind you what their names were. Their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah says, whom the Lord aids, helps. But their, their Babylonian names, Shadrach is, has a reference to the, to the moon god, Meshach has a reference to the sun god, and Abednego means a servant of Nebo. Well, uh, Azariah was never a servant of Nebo, he was a servant of God. Why wouldn't they bow down? Firstly, because the law forbade it, serving another god other than Yahweh, worshipping an idol. Exodus 20, you shall, this is for Ten Commandments, yes? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or it is in the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Forbidden by the law. That's why they didn't bow. Number two, because they'd already taken their stand in Daniel 1 over food and drink that had been offered to idols. They didn't suddenly decide to take a stand of faith. They'd been living like this for years. All right? They just maintained their stand. I imagine that when the music played and the people got down on the ground, the three just stood there, looked at one another, were together in this, and stood there. To be faithful and obedient to the Lord was a decision they had made years before. They just weren't going to change their mind. Verse 8 to 12. Therefore, at that time, Certain Chaldeans, which is the wise men, came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn and the flute and the harp and the lyre and the psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, you're getting used to hearing that now, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And then they name them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Telling tales, eh? They think they've got them stitched up. Daniel 3.13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they stood, they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound, because they're going to do it all over again for their sakes, at the time when you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the harp and the lyre and the psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, if then you this time fall down and worship the image where I have made, good. We'll leave it there, in other words. But if you do not worship, you will be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Though Nebuchadnezzar is enraged, he has some care for these men. He knows them. 
He, he doesn't hate them. He doesn't want to kill them, really. But they've defied his law. So he gives them opportunity to, we would say, repent, to change their mind and avoid the penalty of breaking his command. But the king is a long way yet from understanding who the Lord is because he says here, I don't think any God could deliver you from what I say. Throughout history, the children of God have been placed in this sort of situation. In the first century AD, it was, offer this incense and declare that Caesar is Lord and you'll be all right. Christians died because they refused to do that. To offer incense and say, Caesar is Lord. In fact, in those days, to say, Jesus is Lord, could get you into a whole heap of trouble, including death. And what did Nero do to Christians? He set them on fire. In London and in Oxford, there are memorials to Christian men and women who were burned at the stake for their faithfulness to the Lord and his word in the 1500s and 1600s. This one, now I know some people who were married at that church. This one is in Stratford, Broadway. It's the Stratford Martyrs Memorial. On the 27th of June, 19, uh, 15, 1556, not in my lifetime. During the reign of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a Catholic monarch, 11 men and two women were brought from Newgate Jail, which is by, now by St. Paul's and by the uh, Old Bailey, and burned at the stake in Stratford together. The memorial there also lists the names of other Protestant martyrs of those times. Christianity today, today in places around the world uh, Christians today in places around the world are dying rather than deny the Lord Jesus. And of all of the great saints in the past and of saints today, that's why we support Barnabas' fund. This is what Scripture says about them. Revelation 12, 11. And they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not lie, love their lives. King James says, even to death. They would die rather than deny the Lord. We face, at the moment here, much smaller trials. But there are God's people around the world who are facing these kinds of trials. Let's go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 16, They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's not arrogance. That's just saying we're not going to defend ourselves. We stood and we're not going to bow. So what can we say? There's nothing to say. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer in this matter. If they, this is the case. Now listen to what they say here. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And then they go further. They, they make a statement of faith here. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But then there's a realism in this. It's not just fake faith. There's a realism too. But if not, in other words, if he doesn't, let it be known to you, king, that we do not serve your gods and nor will we worship the gold image that you have set up. They don't defend themselves. They admit the charge against them. They did not and will not bow down to worship this image. They accept the penalty if, of, the, of, of their offense. They're willing to trust the Most High to deliver them. They're hoping God that he'll do that. But when the king said to them, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Their answer is, our God is able to do it. 
We'll give you an answer to that one. Our God is able to do that. And if he doesn't deliver them, they would rather go into the furnace than do what is required. Some of us may have quit a job or left a relationship or lost out financially for the sake of righteousness, doing what is right before the Lord. But this was a life and death choice. The answer of the three was faithful but also realistic. The God we serve is able. We are believing him, we are trusting him that he will deliver us. But even if he does not, we still won't bow. Phil Moore quoted him last week, said, Real faith trusts God two ways. It trusts God's power for a miracle and it trusts God's character in the absence of the miracle. You need to get the notes afterwards and write that one down. Notice this. The three did not curse or threaten their accusers or the king. There was no yabu, you know, whatever. No rudeness, no arrogance, no backtalk. This was Christ-like meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It's being strong and disciplined and not returning, cursing for cursing, anger for anger, violence for violence. They refused to take vengeance into their own hands. They could have said, if you throw us in there, God's going to judge you, man. But they didn't. There was no vengeance. They received it with meekness. They left judgment and vengeance to the Lord. So now Nebuchadnezzar's had it. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed. Toward, so there was a kind of like, come on guys, help me here, get this, get this, sort this out. But now it's like, no. His face changed. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. How do you make something hot? You put more fuel in, you put more air in, you pump air in like bellows, you know, in an old-fashioned kind of fire thing, you know, to get the fire going. Or you waft it, you know. When I want to get a... I haven't done many barbecues in the last few years, but when we used to have barbecues more often, I'd stand there with a cardboard board or an old tray or something, and I'd fan the thing to get it going, you know, get it burning up hotter. They heated the furnace seven times more. And he commanded certain men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these three men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's command was urgent, the furnace was exceedingly hot. The flame of fire killed the men who threw them in. And the three fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. When you throw something into a fire, there's displacement. The sparks that fly up, there's, there's flames that come. They come out sideways or upwards. Wherever. If you throw you know, a great big log in a fire, there's movement, isn't there? And as I threw these three men into the fire, the flame that came out because of the displacement killed them. Flame of hot gases killed the guards. Let me suggest something as well here. As the Nebuchadnezzar saw the three thrown in and he's at a distance away, what were they expecting to hear? Screams. And they didn't hear it. They didn't hear that. So the king rises from his chair and goes a bit closer to the furnace. Verse 24. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke. 
He's now looking in and he says this. Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they go, oh, yes, true, king. Look, he said, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. These three graphics are from a Christian cartoon about this, but I think they're pretty good. Imagine Nebuchadnezzar standing, so he's not going to get hurt, but he's looking. And he's looking into the fire. And he sees the three Hebrew men as shadows in the fire, but there's another presence in the fire that isn't a shadow. He's full of light. I like that. And it really was, you're right, Nebuchadnezzar, it was the Son of God. This is far from being the only time the Lord Jesus appears in the Old Testament Scriptures and history. Such appearances of God in a physical form, not just an an angel messenger from heaven sent, but the Lord himself appearing, or the messenger of God, or the, the, the angel of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, occur throughout the Old Testament. Every time that happens, it's God the Son presenting himself to men. Back in November 2012... I preached a whole morning on this one verse from, from, from 1 John, John verse 1. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, or King James, in the bosom of the Father, right from the heart of God, he has revealed him. Every appearance of the Lord in human form or otherwise in the Old Testament is the Son imaging the unseen Father. That is what John 1, 18, together with other New Testament scriptures telling us, before God was made flesh, the eternal Son appeared to men, sometimes in a temporary human form. He's called the angel or messenger of the Lord. Angel, messen- angel means messenger. It's a Greek word that wasn't translated, angelos. It means messenger, the one sent from the Lord. His, the, the Lord of his presence, sometimes he's simply called God, the Lord Yahweh, in a physical form. So theologians say every theophany, which means appearance of God, is a Christophany, which means appearance of Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar did see the Son of God, albeit through a veil of flames. So here's another point along the way. The Lord Jesus was with them in the furnace, just as Isaiah had prophesied. And the Lord is with us too in our trial of faith. He cannot be otherwise, for he has promised. And in fact, it's another Isaiah scripture I'll mention here. Isaiah 63, read it the other morning. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. The Lord Jesus turned up in the fiery furnace to save them. But firstly, to be with them. They were not alone. They were not without his presence, not without his help. Phil Moore again says, whenever we suffer for the gospel, Jesus personally comes and stands with us and supports us. You can read that Paul saying that in 2 Timothy 4 verse 17 as well. Nebuchadnezzar goes even closer to the furnace, as near as he can dare, and he calls to the three. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice what it says here. Servants of the Most High God. The God who is greater than the sun God and the moon God and Baal and Nebo. 
servants of the Most High God. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and king's counselors gathered together. And they saw these men. Now, listen. On whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed. Nor were their garments affected. And the smell of fire was not on them. The only thing that burned in that fire was what? The ropes, their bonds. They'd been trussed up before they were thrown in. And when they were thrown in, those were burned off. Sometimes the fiery trial of faith for us lasts just long enough to burn away something that we should not have. The pressure of the trial pushes us to seek the Lord and we find release from something that has had us bound. God's refining fire sometimes burns off things that shouldn't be there. That's why it's a refining fire. What needs to burn should burn. So Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's their God, not his God, but we'll, we'll get there. Who sent his angel, his messenger, and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word. I mean, he, he's, he's saying, that they, they defeated my law. We know people who want to defeat laws at the moment in this country, but they defeated the king's law there. And yielded their bodies. Notice this, he's, 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 he's remarking on their meekness. They did not resist him. They yielded their bodies that they should not serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I, Nebuchadnezzar speaking, make a decree that any people, nation or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses will be made a heap, or literally an ash heap, in other words, they'll be burned down, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. He's part converted. He's getting there. We'll see when we get there next week. This outcome is an absolute revelation to Nebuchadnezzar. It's humbling for him. He was defeated by their God. He makes another move towards fearing God here, but he's still not quite got there because he's talking about their God. Faith, saving faith, says our God, my God. Not their God. You know? He says no other God could have done this. He calls him the Most High. He's the God of heaven. And he is the most high, the God of heaven. He's not just the English God or the American God. He's, the God. he's not even just the God of the whole earth. He is high, far, above, and reigns over all. He's the sovereign, cosmic God. You know, their gods were the God of the, this piece of territory and that bit of land and that hillside. He's the most high. No one can claim him exclusively to themselves. And likewise, no one can claim to find him their own way. He has revealed himself in the scriptures, in his son. And we are commanded to believe and obey him as he has shown himself to us by his own self-revelation. But to give you another quote from Fillmore, who tweeted his commentary on this day by day, week, years ago. Daniel 3, people who take a stand for God at work. I mean, they, these guys literally took a stand, but you know. 
People who take a stand for God at work find other people start worshipping God. Your workplace is as godly as you make it. Daniel 3.30 Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Stop there a moment. Some of the other wise men had had soon a chance to bring about their downfall because they resented them. Guess what the king does here? He appoints Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over all the other rulers out out in the homeland. They're now the top three and the rest are beneath them. Now they're placed in power over those who would have destroyed them. And not many decades later, that happened again in Esther. Esther, a Jewish woman, who became the queen of Persia and her uncle Mordecai. Through those two, the Jewish people were saved from destruction planned against them by Haman and the others. It's a good book, Esther. But do you... Last week I gave you a headline, Pressure and Promotion. Pressure and Promotion is what you see in chapter 3 as well. The three Hebrew men were brought under extraordinary, excruciating, we might say, pressure. They came through the trial of faith and were promoted. Esther came through her trial of faith. It wasn't fiery in a sense. And she became, first of all, Queen of Persia and then along with Mordecai, the agent of salvation, to bring in the salvation of the Lord for the Jews and the whole empire of Persia. In chapter 11, that great chapter on faith, Paul writes about the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Interestingly, Paul there writes those three things from Daniel, which he puts them in the other reverse order. Together in Daniel 1, they escaped the edge of the sword. The three together in Daniel 3 quenched the violence of fire. And Daniel alone, by the grace of God, stopped the mouths of lions in Daniel 6. And Paul in 2 Timothy talks about the Lord stopped the mouths of lions for him too, but it wasn't literal. It was the Roman authorities. The image of fire and furnace was found long before Daniel's time. It's how the prophet spoke of two things. You need to understand these, these two things are about fire and furnace of fire. The destruction of the wicked, but also God's purifying discipline towards his people. It's a refining fire or a destroying fire. Depends if you're his or you're not. The same fire will refine God's children, but destroy the ungodly. And fire is a symbol of God's holiness. You know, people say baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, but you know, they think fire means equipping. No, fire has nothing to do with equipping. It has to do with holiness. God burning up what is not holy, which is some of you, a bit of you, that needs some attention. Or if you're an unbeliever, all of you, eternally. For us who believe, fire is a symbol of God's purifying and sanctifying work in his children. And at the end of Hebrews 12, which is a chapter not about how God gives us licks and, you know, is, 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 is a kind of a uh, disciplining God father, you know, a stern father. That isn't kind of the language of it. It's this. 
God disciplines us, trains us, is the word we need to get hold of. It's training for his holiness, that we may share in his holiness. It's training. It's not, I've had it with you now, you're going to get a whop. It's not, it's training to share in his holiness. And at the very end of that chapter 12, and I engage you and encourage you to read it, you find this phrase, and it's a quotation from Exodus and Deuteronomy twice, our God is a consuming fire. It's in the very central nature of God to be fiery because he is holy. He's also light because he's holy. So light searches searches out and exposes all things. Fire comes and consumes what isn't holy. As I said earlier, sometimes God will place us in a fiery trial because there's something that needs to get burned off. That we may share in his holiness. The prophet spoke in that way. Fire being used to describe, on the one hand, God's work of refining in his people and his work of final judgment upon his enemies. And Jesus spoke of the fiery furnace twice in Matthew 13 as relating to the final destination of the wicked, a fiery furnace. Now, I don't just want to get above ourselves. I don't want us to get above ourselves. For most of us, to compare ourselves with these three men is definitely to overstate the matter and overreach ourselves. We are not in their kind of condition and situation, all right? Our threatening and pressured situations are small compared to this. But the early Christians, just like these three in Daniel 3, often risked their lives. And here's some examples of that that phrase coming up in Scripture. Risked their lives. They chose to be in danger rather than deny the Lord. In Acts 15, James and the elders of the Jerusalem church write a letter to the Gentile believers, the Council of Jerusalem, the decision that comes out. In that letter they commend... These are the words, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They commend them for having put themselves in danger for the gospel. Romans 16, Paul in his closing statements greets Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. They risked their necks. Now, because they were Roman citizens, they literally risked their necks because capital punishment for a Roman citizen was... Beheading. You leant forward on a block and they cut your head off, which is a bit kinder than being crucified or burned or whatever else. So they risked their necks to help Paul. And to the Philippians, Paul writes about this man, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He says he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And then he goes on and says, Philippians 2 verse 29, Receive him them in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what's deficient in your service to me. Risking his life. The, word there, the Greek word there for risking is this one. <coughs> to cast the dice. Now I don't want any of you to go out gambling today. But that's the currency of that word. He rolled the dice of his life to serve the Lord and to serve Paul. Risked his life. Loved not their lives even to death. If people can trust the Lord to that degree, surely we can step up and trust him some more ourselves within our smaller situations. In the New Testament, faith is tested as gold, purified by fire. This is how Peter starts and then concludes, almost concludes his first letter. 
I, I mentioned it the other week. I'm going to read it to you today. Okay. After the initial greeting in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, future inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, it doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You go to Argus to pick up something you've reserved. You go to an eBay or an Amazon place to pick up something that's reserved there for you. But our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God through faith, full salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this salvation and in this hope, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, he's writing to people who are being persecuted, but he's, he's, not, he's not overstating it. He's kind of playing it down a little bit. Various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. He's making a comparison. Gold becomes more precious as you test it and it becomes purer. The more fire you apply to the gold, the more pure it becomes. 9 carat, 16 carat, 22 carat, 24 carat. 24 carat is pure gold, isn't it? Faith, which has been tested, is more precious than gold. Not just faith anyway, but faith that's come through. And who calls it precious? Who, va- who places that valuation on it? I dare to say this. It is God himself who regards t- faith that has trusted him and obeyed him and looked to him and hoped in him through trial as being very precious in his sight. That faith is precious though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is reward for tested and enduring faith. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then in chapter 4, as he's kind of closing up, he says, Beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened to you. Why is this happening to us? But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings so that when his glory is revealed, you also will be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, Blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is being glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. To conclude then, today. Come back to this. I said to Colin, I thought I was going to preach long. No, man, I haven't yet. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Few of us are Daniels. Please don't set your heart on being a Daniel. You may not be. And you may have a very hard time trying to be. Most of us are Hananiahs and Mishaels and Azariahs who stand together. Nod. We're still standing. Yep, we're standing. We're backing down? No, we're not backing down. 
We stand together. We exhort one another. We encourage one another. I don't want to dismiss or diminish the the pressure and pain of our trials, but there's a biblical perspective here. We are not in that kind of situation. And yet we need one another. We have partnership with one another. We need the Lord and we need one another. And when we help and support and encourage one another, we are obeying his command to love one another and serve one another. It's very important. We have partnership with one another. Partnership is not just, I've signed this up and I turn up on Sundays. Partnership is, I'm committed to engaging with brothers and sisters to our mutual encouragement and help in whatever way we can. And I've written at the end of my notes, but I'll say it now. If you can't make evenings during the week, find what time you can meet with one or two others. Maybe over a coffee on a Saturday or on a Sunday, tea time or whatever. And get more engagement in encouraging one another to stand up and stand firm in face of Jesus. Make the time. Make the space. God spreads a table. It's a, the question is, are we turning up to his table? We have the presence of the Lord with us. He has promised it. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you to the end of the age until we see him face to face. He doesn't go away. He's given the Holy Spirit to us. And while in our feelings and our emotions it may seem like God is here and not here, that's the way you are feeling. Uh, He doesn't actually remove his presence from us because he's promised not to. That's true, unchangeably true. However, we can feel distance from him when we have a bad conscience, when there's things we should have dealt with and we need to deal with, or or, or when we've not spent time in prayer and fellowship and worship and so on. We we don't feel his presence. We don't feel his presence as we could, maybe should, but that God has not changed. We changed. We need to repent and come back. As the Lord said last Sunday for our sister Chimunsa, we have the presence of the Lord with us. It's I was thinking of a King James English word, vouchsafed, he's promised. It's a good word, that, isn't it? Vouchsafed. He's promised, sworn, that he will not take his presence from us. We have his promises. Great and precious promises. The one I read earlier today, Isaiah 43. Let's do it again. Fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And I said it many times, let me just say it again, I'm sorry, but here we go. This promise does not say, I'll lift you out so you don't have to go through something. It doesn't say that. This is, not, this is not a ladder drop from heaven. This is light at the end of the tunnel. You are going through. You are going through. When you pass through the waters, the floods, I will be with you. They're through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I wonder whether the three remembered those words of Isaiah a hundred years later. Then trials are to purify and strengthen our faith. They're not to demolish us. They're not to punish us. And by the way... uh, uh, let's not put illness into this, this thing here. God doesn't punish us by making us ill. It's not, reprim- it's not kind of, you know, 
punishment from heaven. Trials are to purify and strengthen our faith. When, you, when the refiner is, puts the heat underneath the crucible, the metal turns molten, and all the crud, all the mess comes to the surface, and he flips it out of the crucible until he can see his face shining in the metal. God's fire for us Christians is a refining fire. And it may not be trouble. Sometimes it's just the fire of his presence. I have sat, laid, been on my face in a meeting in the presence of God and I knew he was cleaning me up. <laughs> I knew some stuff was going on. There was, a, there was a conversation going on and God talking to me about things and me answering him humbly back. And uh, you know, This was refining. The fire of his presence, the sense of his holiness, the, the, the sense of his presence that made me almost gasp for breath. <gasps> the holy presence of God comes to refine us. And maybe, maybe we could pray that one of these evenings, at least one of these evenings this week when we turn up here to pray, we may so encounter the presence of God that we're gasping for our breath and he's taken us aside into his very presence. Isaiah 48, verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. God allows us to go through some things because we'll come out better. Bonds gone, heart cleansed, a greater, deeper, stronger faith in the Most High. That's why He allows them. But pride is a very dangerous material. If I would. Compare it to gelignite. They don't use gelignite nowadays. It's, it's, a, it's an explosive, and it's not very stable. If you shake or drop it, it can go off. They use things like plastic explosive now, which you can kind of put in a carry bag, and until it's got an electrical current going into it, it won't go off. But gelignite is like, whoa, 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 be careful. with it. it's, it's jelly-like, as the word says, and it, tricky stuff. Pride is gelignite. It's best put away and not carried about. The sooner you get rid of it, the better. And some of us Christians have far too high an opinion of ourselves. We think, we're fine, I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody. My friend, that is pride. Very, very dangerous. Pride comes before falling. Pride will keep us from others and it will certainly keep us from the Lord's help. We'll see next time how the Lord dealt with Nebuchadnezzar's pride. In a, next Sunday, the headline is this, A Severe Mercy. God was very tough in his mercy towards Nebuchadnezzar. Put down your pride. Engage with your brothers and sisters. Give and receive prayer, encouragement, truth and affirmation. If you can't make a midweek, find another time, you know, weekend even, Saturday morning coffee, regular slot with someone to catch up together. Here's my last thought. We need to engage one another and help one another and support one another so that we put faith in Jesus back at the very center of life. That's what that graphic tells you. Life in Jesus at the very center of life. Not on the periphery, that's Sunday, the rest of the week is mine. 
Or, or, no, no, that's nothing to do with work. That's nothing to do with family. It's all to do with him. Life in Jesus at the center of the whole of life. We sing our songs that say that. Jesus at the center of it all. So, My friends, it's only as we engage with one another and keep encouraging one another, the three men standing in a row, not, yeah, we're here. Those moments of catch-up together when we just sit over a coffee and say, how are you doing? Well, come on, then let's pray. And if you can't pray with your eyes open in a cafe, we'll show you how. <laughs> it's not that difficult. <laughs> you can close your eyes in a cafe, Carol says. She's done it too. All right. Bringing faith in Jesus again and again. This is not just, it doesn't just happen. This is a decision we make and a fight we fight. To put faith in Jesus at the very core of it all. The center of all of life. That nothing is outside of his presence. And his grace and his salvation and his glory and his kingdom. Come on, let's pray and then Colin's going to come and lead us in breaking bread. I want to just encourage you to take a moment to pray yourself right now. Maybe you're not yet a Christian. And what I've said this morning is like, ooh, scary, man. Um, <laughs> faith starts with something very simple. It starts with you surrendering yourself to Jesus. Placing yourself in his hands, saying, I'm, I'm not going to do life on my own. I'm not going to do life without you anymore. I want to belong to you. I want to be yours, Lord Jesus. It's the handing over of your life. The the Hebrew three yielded their lives into the hand of the king to kill them if necessary because they were not going to accept his command. We yield our lives into the hands of Jesus who will not destroy us. He will become our saviour. He will keep us. He will help us. Why don't you give your life over into his hands right now? A brief, simple prayer on your part is all I ask you to do. In your words, as humble and ordinary as you like, give yourself to the Lord Jesus this morning. All of you. Then for the the rest of us, we... We may not be going through a fiery trial. That would maybe be overstating it. But you go through troubles, trials. You go through times of opposition, perhaps. And that can come from people we're very close to, not just at work, but even in our home. I want to remind you this morning again, the Lord is with you. And the Lord will help you. And what he wants from you is to step up in faith and trust him even more. Trust him even more for his grace to come to you. And look for it to come through scripture, through prayer, but also through others. Remember times we've heard stories of someone, I think I need to ring so-and-so, and they do, and that person that day is having a bad situation. And God wants, see, God's, God's putting food on the table. He's putting grace on the table. And sometimes we have to deliver it to people. Are we ready for God to bring his help to us in the situations where we're under the most pressure?
because he wants to. And every trial should work for our good in the long run. Every trial. That's his intention. Why don't we submit ourselves under his hand as two? Say, Lord, you are in control. You are the most high. And we say with the, the Hebrew man, verse 3, you are able and we will trust you. But if we don't see the miracle now, today, this week, we will trust your character until we get the outcome. And we will not back down. We will not bow down. We will not go away. We will not apologize for being a Christian in this, in this world. May the Lord strengthen us in our faith in him, even through the hard times. That Jesus may be honored in us and through us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Colin.